0: UK Cambridge Centre podcast. In this Integrated Cancer Medicine Research in Focus series, I talk to various ICM members about their research and how it is supported by the vision of the Mark Foundation Institute for Integrated Cancer Medicine. MFICM research uses cutting-edge analytics to maximise the use of diverse high-volume data sets and by capturing cancer heterogeneity in time and space in patients receiving active treatment. Integrated Cancer Medicine aims to transform the way the world treats cancer by affecting patients along their treatment pathway and ultimately accelerate cures. Today I have with me Dr Emma Beddoes, Dr Christopher Smith and Professor James Brenton and we're going to talk about circulating tumour DNA, what it is and how it is currently used to help assess and determine a patient's treatment how it integrates as a data pipeline to contribute to personalised treatment for a patient and how its use might develop in the future. Dr. Beddows is Clinical Senior Research Associate, Honorary Academic Consultant in Medical Oncology at the University of Cambridge. Dr. Smith is a Senior Research Associate specialising in cancer genetics and circulating tumour DNA analysis at the University of Cambridge. Professor Brenton is co-leader of the Integrated Cancer Medicine Programme Professor of Ovarian Cancer Medicine and Academic Honorary Consultant in Medical Oncology at the University of Cambridge. So to start with, Chris, could I ask you to briefly outline what ctDNA is?
1: Sure. So ctDNA stands for Circulating Tumour DNA. But to take a step back from that slightly, we know that the cells of the body, most of them, if not all of them, release DNA into the circulation. Uh, how they do this, we don't entirely know. It might be that the cells die, and in doing so they kind of pop and the DNA finds its way into the circulation. But this DNA that's in the circulation, in the blood circulation, we refer to it as cell-free DNA. So all of the cells of the body are contributing to this. And in patients with cancer, cells that make up their tumour are also doing this, they're also releasing DNA into the bloodstream and it's that DNA that originates from tumour cells that we refer to as CT DNA, circulating tumour DNA. We don't entirely know for sure how the DNA finds its way into the circulation, it might be that the cells dying undergoing a process called apoptosis or necrosis, which are two forms of cell death, it might be that the cells are actively secreting DNA into the circulation, perhaps they're housed in, in vesicles. There's a lot we don't know at the moment, but those are the, the sort of running theories we have at the moment as to where CT DNA comes from.
0: Great. Right. So Emma, can I ask you, why is this important for the treatment of cancer? Broadly, it
2: allows us to get a non-invasive kind of snapshot of someone's cancer, which could help in guiding treatment choices and potentially could allow us to detect cancers earlier and cancer recurrences earlier but also it can be used dynamically during a patient's treatment journey if you like because it just involves a blood test so we can look uh, in real time what's happening with a patient's cancer and how that's evolving and we'd hope that we could use that information
1: to guide further treatment for the patient sure
0: And Chris, is it a new technique or is it something that's been around a while?
1: We've known that DNA is in the blood for quite a long time. I think it was in something like 1950 that DNA, free DNA was originally observed in in the blood. I think it actually preceded the discovery of the double helix. So we've known about cell-free DNA for quite a long time, but it's only really since the mid-20s or 2000s that that things have really started to pick up. So actually one of the the, the things that led to the explosion in in CT DNA research was work that was going on in a a slightly different field, prenatal testing. In women who were pregnant, uh, it was found that DNA from the fetus found its way into the mother's bloodstream. We were able to study the DNA in the mother's bloodstream and that would give us an indication as to the underlying state of the, the fetus. There was a lot of interest in this in the early 2000s, and around that time, people started taking notice who were working in oncology and thinking, okay, well, maybe we can use this for studying tumours. So really, in the early 2010s, I think things really started to pick up. And there was a lot of research, the group that I'm in here, and Rosenfeld's lab, based at the Cancer Research UK Cambridge Institute. They and and others were amongst the first to, to demonstrate potential utility for ctDNA and they started to develop assays that specifically look for mutations of ctDNA. I should also mention James Brenton was one of the pioneers along with NITSAN back then as well.
0: So that takes us nicely to James. James could I ask you will this test work for all cancer types or is it more relevant to certain
3: cancers? At the moment these tests have been done a lot in clinical trials and for most cancers they haven't got into routine NHS care. I guess the big exception is lung cancer, where picking up a fault in a gene in the cancer can be done from a blood sample. And that's an approved way of working out whether a patient could actually benefit from a very specific treatment uh, for their type of lung cancer. In the cancer I study, which is called high-grade serous ovarian carcinoma, which is what most people think of when they're saying ovarian cancer, that's what they mean. This is a disease that's really complex in terms of the wiring diagram of the cancer cells. So we are trying to use circulating tumor DNA as a way of working out quickly whether a patient is going to respond to either chemotherapy, standard of care treatment, or to newer treatments like the PARP inhibitors. And we've been going about that in a number of ways. One of the things we've been looking at is samples from clinical trials. And we can show that in the first four weeks of treatment with these part medicines, we can see changes in the ctDNA that strongly predict that a patient is going to respond to treatment. So that's, that's, I think, will be very useful, particularly as the medicines are expensive. So if we can find out quickly, that means a patient might have less side effects and obviously not waste time taking a medicine that isn't really helping them. And overall, we'd probably save a bit of money by not using medicines that don't work.
0: Could you just tell us what PARP inhibitor means? Can you just define that a little bit for our listeners?
3: So PARP inhibitors are a new type of tablet medicine, which change the way in which important proteins involved in DNA repair are controlled. And The medicines you might have heard about are alaparib, Rucaparib, and Niraparib. And they're being used particularly in ovarian cancer, but also in other cancers associated with faults in the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes. So that includes breast cancer, pancreatic cancer, and prostate cancer. So they're a new medicine, but being used much more frequently across a range of cancer types that affect both men and women.
0: Thank you. And Emma, could I ask you, is this widely available, this test? Well, I think, as James said, that it it is being used within lung cancer, but
2: not routinely as an NHS test. I would say that at the moment it's still mainly used in research, but it is coming. You know, Genomics England are looking at various tests that uh, we're going to be starting to use. So genomic tests in general, I'd say, are increasing. So, But I do think that it probably requires some bigger clinical trials to get into routine clinical use so yeah not quite yet would be my answer to that.
0: Has it been part of a clinical trial yet that you are aware of within the Cambridge setting or are there plans to use it in future trials?
2: So in breast cancer we have an ongoing trial which we collect the samples and we look at the potential links of the results to patient outcomes. Quite a lot of work looking at levels of tumour DNA and whether we can predict treatment response or not. And we think we probably can, and we can probably do that earlier than CT scans. But I think the next stage is where we need to go. We need to look at the impact of using that data on the patient themselves in a randomised way. Because if using this information doesn't improve either survival or quality of life, then those are the things I think we really need to look at. And they probably involve some larger scale clinical trials from which I'm, I'm trying to get some funding. But that's a work in progress.
3: Sure.
0: James, are you aware of any trials that are using it currently?
3: So I think most trials going on have started to collect circulating tumour DNA or the blood samples for circulating tumour DNA.
0: James, can I ask you what challenges and opportunities using ctDNA analysis represent?
3: So I think what we're talking about here is new ways of monitoring and helping patients to know what's happening to their cancer. And the challenges of COVID have really underscored how hard it is sometimes for patients to get to a busy hospital, particularly when they're trying to take care of themselves, perhaps during intensive treatment for their cancer. And monitoring, uh, if that can be done with the blood test, could be a real time saver and potentially a money saver. And I think there's a few really important things to say. So for some cancers, there are blood biomarkers that can be used already, such as measuring CEA in patients' blood for patients who have colon cancer, or CA125 in the blood of patients who've got ovarian cancer. But actually, measuring the DNA from the cancer itself gives the prospect of having this sensitive test for many more patients with cancer. And the second thing is, I think having a blood test is easier than driving to the hospital for an outpatient visit. And ways that we can make that test more accessible are, I think, really worth testing. And with NITSAN's group, we're developing methods to try and do tests of just a drop of blood from an individual. And we could foresee that being useful because patients could actually take their own sample using a test similar to a diabetes blood stylet test. So if we can do a useful CT DNA test of 50 microliters, which is literally a big drop of blood, you could imagine how people could take that and send it in and have those analysed in a way that means they don't have to come to hospital. And I think we do have to think about healthcare for the future where People spend less time sitting around in waiting rooms and more time providing the right samples than us contacting them via telephone, video and electronic means. It's Not a substitute for face-to-face consultations, but I think that more flexibility would be welcome to many people and many of our patients.
0: And I guess that has a knock-on impact when you think about rolling this out to places further than just a Cambridge hub to district hospitals and places further afield.
3: Absolutely. And I hope that one of the things that happens post COVID is we just get slightly better infrastructure for doing simple things like taking blood tests. At the moment, GPs have been really helpful in trying to make this work, but they're a bit overrun. And I think that there are tube technologies that allow you to have a CT DNA test and it sent in the post, but we just don't have an infrastructure to do that at the moment. But I think one big positive about COVID is we need to look much more closely at some of these kind of fundamentals of healthcare. How does a patient in West Suffolk, for instance, go and have an, a blood test that can come to Cambridge to have that analysed at the minimum pain and suffering and inconvenience for them?
0: Yeah,
3: sure, Chris. Could I get your thoughts on that same question? Yeah, no, I, I think James has nicely
1: highlighted. of the hopes we have for for ctd analysis the the convenience another great advantage of of this test could be the fact that because it's non-invasive we're able to take several samples over time whereas you know if you were taking a tissue biopsy from a patient you could generally only take that once because it's painful invasive with these blood tests in theory you can take them as many times as you can take blood from a patient so that could allow you know real-time monitoring of a patient how they're they're responding to treatment day by day week by week so you know there there are lots of advantages there there are challenges and I think that was the other part of your question what are the challenges and you know there's still a lot that we don't know about ctDNA we don't know about you kind of alluded to it earlier with one of your other questions we don't know whether ctDNA is useful across all of the different cancer types, some of our data suggests that there are certain cancer types where ctDNA is a lot harder to detect and to characterize. We don't know simple things like whether men have more ctDNA than female cancer patients or whether you know older cancer patients release more or less ctDNA than younger cancer patients. So some of the fundamentals basics like that we we don't understand yet so It's kind of a a weariness um, in the background to how we interpret all of this data and and move it forward into sort of regular practice.
0: Sure, yeah. and We've alluded to it a little bit, but Emma, perhaps I could ask you to talk about how you think it might change the patient pathway, this kind of test.
2: Well, I think one of the obvious things, and I think we're probably not that far off potentially doing, is the dynamic monitoring of patients on a treatment and we can give an early signal to say, you know, should we continue this or not? So I would say that that's probably one of the closest things that we may end up doing. But I mean, fundamentally, you can take this right back to the start of early detection. I guess the the sort of holy grail, and, and we're not there yet because of challenges Chris alluded to, in that I don't think we have a big enough sample of what normal is like, but potentially this could be used for early detection of cancers. I mean, there are some ethical minefields within that, but I think, I think fundamentally that's where this may be aiming. And there's also clinical data out there looking at early detection of recurrence. But again, whether picking up that recurrence and treating it differently will change the overall outcome is something that needs to be tested. So the technology is there. And I think as that technology moves on, we'll get to the start of the patient pathway. But I would say that the next thing that may come into more routine practice is using it to monitor patients. And that's certainly something James has been looking at and something I've looking at. And we've, we've both got data sets that show that it can be done. So we just need to then take that a step further and say, well, actually, what difference does that make to the patient themselves?
0: Sure. And actually, that follows on nicely to my next question, which is what impact do you think it will have on patient treatment outcomes? Is it too early to say or do you have an inkling of that already?
2: I think there's a lot more we need to know about what governs response to treatment. And I don't think the answer to that is purely in just the genomics. I think there are other elements to to the genetics of a cancer that govern treatment response that we don't yet know. There are some markers for potential links to treatment, but they're not always that strong. So I'd say that's one of the challenges, actually, is that we can say, we can identify a particular mutation and say that, in theory, this would mean that you would benefit from this type of inhibitor. But actually, the data for that isn't that strong. So I think that's something we really need to work on, because that's also how this should evolve really is that how do we therefore pinpoint what the next best treatment is for that patient? And I think there's still a bit of work to do for that.
0: James, can I get your thoughts on that?
3: I just want to agree with Emma that this is a really useful test, but no one test is going to substitute for everything. So we have to look at tests in the context of the patient and their response and their side effects. So this data integration is a big focus Uh, for us in Cambridge, funded by the Mark Foundation Institute for Integrated Cancer Medicine. And a large part of that funding is going for very detailed studies of ctDNA and response in early breast cancer. And getting large data sets will teach us a lot more about why particular individuals are responding, and that's going to be good for, obviously, all the patients who come after those discoveries. Again, I think this ability to take relatively frequent relatively precise measurements of a patient's tumour just allows us to ask different questions and really important questions but we're always going to be putting that into the context of other data about the patient the imaging and how well they are and their side effects Uh, but it's part of a, a vision I think that we in Cambridge have of trying to get to a truly integrated cancer medicine approach to patient care.
0: And Chris, do you think that this will be accepted into standard of care eventually?
1: I'm probably not the one to ask. I think the other two are the ones to ask. <laughs> I think it, it's very promising. And I, I think somebody said it earlier, there are some tests which have been approved in certain cancer types. I expect if we can, once we've learned more about this biomarker, once there's more data, we've, we've had several completed clinical trials that robustly demonstrate the, the utility I do like to think that some way down the line, yes, we'll be able to use this very promising biomarker as standard of care, along with all of the other things that are currently going on. So, you know, like imaging, as James just said. So um, I, I like to think so.
0: It'll be part of an integrated data picture. Exactly.
3: I think one answer to add to Chris's response is this huge investment in this, particularly in kind of first world Countries. So I think if we're looking at those patterns, I would say the future looks very bright for getting ctDNA in as routine tests.
0: Thanks, James. So, can I ask you, Emma, how is this research funded? A large part of some of the uh, imaging work and the personalised breast
2: cancer programme are funded by the Mark Foundation Institute for Integrated Cancer Medicine. But some of the other breast programmes are funded from the CALDAS lab. Um, and within the CRUK Cambridge Institute Um, but I'm also trying to get funding from other sources including the uh, National Institute of
0: Health Research uh,
2: who, who support sort of feasibility clinical trials So that's something I'm
0: pursuing. And Chris who are you funded by?
1: So I personally am funded by CRUK. Our group and the research we're doing are funded by several entities so CRUK in particular but the ERC, the European Research Council uh, I believe we've we've had projects funded by Stand Up to Cancer, also smaller local charities like ATC, the Advent Brooks Charitable Trust. That's true of Breast as well.
0: Can I ask each of you how this fits in with your broader research? Chris, could I start with you?
1: CT DNA is pretty much the main focus of my research, ranging from the biology of self-free DNA. So what are its origins, what defines its levels in young people, in old people, in males, in females. So, broad research, but also translational research. So, I'm involved in several research trials looking at how CT DNA could be used to predict response to treatments. And potentially, further down the line, as alluded to by Emma, it'd be great if we could use CT DNA for early detection. And, and we and others have initiated projects that are, are looking to answer just that very early stage of answering that question but yeah so I, I have a very broad remit really but it's all very much focused on delivering on the potential of ctdna
0: and is your focus on cancer treatment or does it work for other diseases as well
1: it's a good question uh, my focus is entirely on, on cancer treatment but there is potential to use cell-free dna so it wouldn't be circulating tumor dna in other disease types because there isn't a tumour, but uh, there's certainly potential to use cell-free DNA to treat other conditions, small things like infections. There, there's data showing that cell-free DNA in urine could potentially be used to monitor urinary tract infections. There is data looking at the levels and composition of cell-free DNA in patients with lupus.
0: Emma, could I ask you how it fits into your broader research? Well, I guess
2: a bit like quest my research is, primarily focused on ctDNA I'm also doing not only breast cancer but I'm also working on a cross-tumor type trial uh, which is a European trial called the Basket Baskets and I've also been part of a European collaboration called Cancer ID which looked to try and harmonize these technologies across the board with the aim of trying to insert this into clinical practice so I guess more globally and kind of across treatment but mainly in breast cancer for me
0: And James, I know I've asked you this before in our third episode of this series, when we talked about integrated radiogenomics for virtual biopsy and treatment monitoring in ovarian cancer. But perhaps I could just ask you briefly again, where do you see integrated cancer medicine taking us in the next five to 10 years?
3: So I think we have to deal with the complexities and the variabilities that exist between patients. And in some cancers, it's really hard to predict who's going to respond to treatment such as ovarian cancer because it's so complex. So we have this challenge of trying to work out the wiring diagram, the tumor, but also if patients have got a lot of disease, they may not respond very well to treatment because they're not very well and the large amount of cancer doesn't get perfused very well by blood supply. And so we really need to bring different scales of information all the way from obviously the standard of care diagnosis and the pathology through to special markers on that through to the genomics and the signatures that might predict treatment, and then all the way up to the blood tests and the blood results that might tell us uh, how well patients are responding. So without that, I think we will not have the ability to predict or to refine our treatment So I think it has a huge, huge potential, and this is the main focus of what we are all doing here in the Integrated Cancer Medicine Programme. And
0: finally, I wanted to ask all three of you where you see your research taking you in the next five to ten years. Emma, can I start with you?
2: Well, I'd like, as I say, I'd like to move it to the next stage and get a clinical trial, hopefully across centres, to look at the impact of using this on the patient treatment journey and the quality of life and the impact on treatment decisions so I'd like I'd like to get funding for that so I'm I'm working on that and then also something I think I'd be really keen to look into more is to try and work out this question about what governs response to treatment because I don't think having seen the data that we have so far the answer is Is wholly there so I think we're going to have to think a bit more laterally about that so maybe a bit more work on the biology of what governs treatment response so then we can use ctDNA to not only tell us if something isn't working but to to suggest even up front what might work best
0: first. Thanks and Chris can I ask you the same question?
1: I think it'll be a mix of things again it'll be trying to understand better understand ctDNA and cell-free DNA where it comes from, what defines its levels. Um, but also, you know, taking advantage of, of all of the, the amazing developments that are going on out there in terms of molecular techniques, the cost of sequencing is, is ever decreasing. And, and a lot of what we do in CT DNA, certainly in, in our lab and the trials that we're involved with revolves around sequencing this DNA. So I think in the next five to 10 years, there'll be new technologies, sequencing will be a lot cheaper. There'll be a lot more that we can do with ctDNA, I think. And, you know, other method developments will will be uh, equally important in in what I do in the next few years. So James mentioned earlier that that we're looking at trying to isolate ctDNA from a single drop of blood that can be spotted onto a card and potentially be shipped in the post from the patient's home to the, the clinic. So... Myself and other members of the lab that I'm in and our collaborators, we're really going to try to to push this approach because
3: it could be really transformative. Sure.
0: And James, finally, over to you.
3: In five to 10 years' time, I'd like us to be able to sit in front of ladies with ovarian cancer and combine all the information from the imaging, the blood tests, the CT DNA, the genome, and be able to give them much better information about what's going to happen to them.
0: Thank you. It's been a really interesting conversation with all three of you this afternoon, so I'd just like to say thank you very much for taking your time out of your busy schedule to join me on this podcast, and thank you very much for chatting to me this afternoon.
3: Thank you. you. Thanks,
2: Sally.
0: If you want to find out more about the work of the Mark Foundation Institute for Integrated Cancer Medicine, please visit our website at www.integratedcancermedicine.org where you can find details of the ICM vision, all the current research, clinical trials, resources, publications and team information. You can keep up to date with our latest news and events and you can also sign up for our newsletter. If you would like more information about the work of the CRUK Cambridge Centre, please go to www.crukcambridgecentre.org.uk or you can connect with us on Twitter using our handle at CRUKCAM Centre. Thanks for listening and do join us again soon.